Hello everybody, it's Mittens with another episode of Supernatural George. Today we are going to discuss Season 2, Episode 9, Croatoan. It was written by John Scheiben, who, as we know, likes to delve into Winchester family dynamics, especially through Dean's point of view. And it was directed by Robert Singer, which we won't hold against this episode. He's done some pretty excellent directing on the show, and whatever issues we might have with Bob Singer later in the future, they don't really touch this episode, so it's just a good episode. I would also like to point out that I doubt anyone who doesn't watch this show from Dean's point of view or isn't Dean-leaning in their lens on this show probably is stopped listening to my podcast ages ago. <laughs> but if anyone is still trying to watch this show as if Sam was the point-of-view character or Sam is the central focus character of the show... I need to beg you to take those goggles off when you watch this episode. Because when you watch it from Dean's point of view, as the then segment is trying to encourage people to do by showing all these flashbacks from Dean's perspective, that I need people to see this through Dean's eyes and understand his headspace here because Sam doesn't. Sam is completely clueless, and this is about as clueless as he will get in this whole series, because he has no idea what this burden that Dean has been carrying is, and he's not even going to find out in this episode. We are going to get glimpses of it, because this episode, it hits a lot of the issues that we will come to understand in the beginning of the next episode, when Dean reveals what that burden that John laid on him was. We won't even know it in this episode, but I'm going to point out all the places where it becomes obvious how this is such a dark mirror for Dean's entire situation with Sam and what he has been carrying all season long. And the show wants us to remember that. And I've been pointing it out in these podcasts every time that button got pushed in Dean's brain of protect Sammy. And if I can't, I'm going to have to kill him. But this is the episode where it truly comes to a head. And it's also the episode beyond which I, I mean, I've said this a number of times, I think up to this point that the series finale just makes no sense in context of the series past a certain point. I think it could have been forced to make sense at the end of season two, But I think this is the last episode where it could have worked as a series finale and made sense for the characters because beyond this point, it doesn't work anymore. (laughs) And so I'm, I'm just wondering why the show went, you know, I know that they were trying to quote unquote, go back to their roots, but there's going back to your roots and then there's negating the story you spent 15 years telling. And so This is the episode for me that basically nullifies the finale once and for all. And I can't watch it as a part of canon anymore. So, I mean, this episode, yes, I can. I absolutely can watch it as a part of canon. The finale, not so much. (laughs) But I'll explain some of that as we go through this episode. So, with that said, let's start at the beginning. 
I don't know how many viewers are familiar with Croatoan and what that is in the Roanoke colony that they talk briefly about in the episode as the origin of the Croatoan, the word, but it was a colony in the early 1500s or in the late 1500s on Roanoke Island in North Carolina. I just checked the date. It was 1590 where they were left. And when the captain sailed off to get more, to resupply the colony, he sailed back to England, but there was bad weather. There were other problems in him getting back. When he came back two or three years later, the entire colony had vanished and all that was left was carved on a tree trunk, the word Croatoan. Well, recent discoveries, I mean, this has been a myth, mysterious legend for hundreds of years what happened to these people was it some evil forces were they killed by natives what happened to this colony of people like a hundred and some people just disappeared and recent discoveries have shown that they were leaving an instruction to go to Croatoan Island because that's where they had gone to resettle (laughs) It, it wasn't supposed to be mystery it was just they went to Croatoan the local Indian population there were the Croatoan people. So it's been suggested that they merged communities, that they were adopted into the Croatoan tribe and lived their lives out that way. So they weren't really lost. They were just not where they were expected to be found. (laughs) which is something entirely different. But the entire colony of people did disappear, just like the the entire population of this town, River Grove, Oregon, disappeared. That's another thing I need to say. River Grove, Oregon is not a real place. It's not a town by Crater Lake, which the show tries to make out. There is a River Grove, all one word, in Oregon, but it's like a suburb of Portland. It's like a big suburban town it's not out in the middle of nowhere like isolated where they're 40 miles away from the nearest town like they said in the show so this river grove doesn't really exist but there is a sort of they took the name from river grove all one word i suppose but it's nowhere near it's like 200 plus miles from crater lake so and crater lake doesn't really have any towns at all around it but Apparently, it is in their universe. There is a river grove that's a sleepy little community right near Crater Lake, which it would be a lovely place to live, but man, isolated, just like they're saying here. There's a few noteworthy actors in this episode who get reused in later episodes. The woman who plays Pam Clayton, the nurse, who is the one who eventually will bleed on Sam and supposedly give him the virus and Dean will shoot her. She played Deputy Jan Harris in Don't Call Me Shirley. She was the one who was infected by Amara's smoke and had the black ooze and Amara was talking to her in her head and she supposedly killed her husband and then went back into town and she's like, I I can't control it. I can't stop it. She was being controlled by Amara, by the darkness. It's telling Sam and Dean the darkness is coming for you all and blah, blah, blah. That's the same actress. So interesting that she was afraid for her boyfriend in this episode, and but she'd already been infected by the virus. And then in the later episode, she's been infected by Amara and kills her husband. And But 
Chuck reverses all that, saves her, and she's reunited with her husband. So she gets a happy ending there, at least, (laughs) which is more than we can say for poor Pam in this episode. The other actor we use is the woman who plays Mrs. Tanner in this episode, plays Mary Lou in Southern Comfort. She's inhabited by the specter, or possessed by the specter in Southern Comfort, and is forced to act on her her long-held grudge or her rage against a loved one. And so she kills her husband because he took somebody else to the prom with him. They're, you know, in their 50s. 60s I don't know but they have an adult son and apparently they've had this long happy marriage together and all of a sudden out of nowhere she kills him over something that happened when they were 18 years old so awful for her that that happens to her again when in this episode she's possessed by this demonic virus her whole family they were trying to attack her and give her the virus but they all end up dead and she ends up dead as well So uh, a lot of similar plot lines for similar characters, or at least thematically similar for actor reuse. We've also got two sets of casting sides for this episode. If you want to read a little bit of the script, we have eight pages of Dr. Lee's casting sides. There's not, not really any substantial changes. These are the studio draft dated October 2nd, 2006. And there's no substantial changes between this draft and what aired. We also have casting sides for Mark Vargo. I don't believe his uh, surname is used in the episode. It's just He's just Mark in the episode, also known as Sarge, who teams up with Dean. And we get one of the most delightful conversations between the two of them that we get in the in season two, I think. The whole Mr. Rogers was your neighbor conversation. His casting sides are in here too. And again, they're not really that much different than what aired, if at all. So just letting you know that they exist and you can go read them for yourselves if you want to. Okay, with all that said now, I think it's time to move on to the then segment because this is a critical one. I don't know if folks have their Netflix or whatever set to skip the the intro segments, but this one I think is very important to see. We get the saving people, hunting things, the family business lines, and the saving people is Sam carrying the two little children out of the house in home in season one. And the hunting things is Dean killing the Wendigo in the second episode of the entire series. So we really delved back into their history to find these two clips. But those are the saving people and hunting things that they chose for this episode. Sam saving two innocent children from his childhood home and Dean killing a creature that had started out as a human but had transformed because of this horror that it took into its own body then became this monstrous being that preys on humanity. So kind of like what he's afraid he's going to have to do to Sam here, that something horrible is inside of Sam and is going to turn him into something not human anymore, which is what John warned him about. And here's Dean killing a creature that fits that description. We cut to Azazel asking John if he knew the truth about Sammy. And John's like, yeah, I've known for a while. And it 
intercut with scenes of Sam having his visions and explaining to Andy that he has visions about people dying and premonitions about death. And we see flashes of some of Sam's death visions that he has seen in canon. We get a couple of intercut shots of John's face while he's talking to Azazel in the hospital and Sam asking John about what the demon told him that he has plans for me. Do you know what he meant by that? And John flat out lies to his face and says, no, because we've already seen him confirm to Azazel in this teaser here that, yes, he's he knows the truth about Sam and he's known for a while. So we know John had flat out lied to Sam's face. And then it cuts to a Dean in his hospital bed looking horrified, like overlaid the fade in of John in his hospital bed lying to Sam and Dean in his hospital bed with this just look of abject horror they are both sharing the screen in the same shot as it fades into Dean and then John saying to Dean right before he died I want you to watch out for Sammy okay then he leans down and whispers something in Dean's ear and we see Dean's horrified face and then John's funeral pyre where Sam's like did he say anything to you And Dean flat out lies to Sam again and says no. Then we immediately have Dean when he's talking to Gordon in episode three of season two, when he's telling him, I can't talk about any of this to Sammy. I got to keep my game face on. And then we show a series of the various monsters that Dean killed in early season two, the Rakshasa that he shot at the clown, you know. Then the girl who came back from the dead, the zombie girl, and her being shot in the head and falling backwards. And Dean looking broken, (laughs) that shot from the end of Bloodlust where he's got the sun shining on his face and he's looking right into the camera. Overlaid with Sam accusing him of being, quote unquote, downright scary when he's hunting, that Dean is not dealing with his emotions here, that he's hiding stuff. Then it goes shot of Dean killing a vampire. Then it goes back to Dean talking to Gordon saying, truth is I'm not handling it very well, meaning everything, not just John's death, but everything. And then Dean smashing the trunk of the Impala. And the final accusation over Dean's blood spattered face is Sam accusing him of tail spinning and you won't let me help you. And yeah, because he promised John he wouldn't burden Sam with this, that it was his responsibility to continue to watch out for Sam and to protect him from becoming something that he would be compelled to kill. We won't find out in this episode what that is, but the show is begging us to consider that in context with all of Dean's actions, choices, and emotional reactions this season to date. I mean, there were clips from almost every single episode so far this season in this then segment. And it's all been Dean killing monsters or shooting at monsters or fighting monsters or whatever. And Sam just basically accusing him of going off the deep end and not being in touch with his emotions and stuff. And Sam just has no clue how much Dean has bottled up. And this episode is going to show it start to bubble to the surface. And he's almost going to tell Sam at several points in this episode, but circumstances don't permit it. 
this episode is Dean point of view. <laughs> I'm sorry for all you Sam lovers out there. He's a great character, but the story is about Dean. It may be about Sam's special powers and their frustrations and trying to figure out what's going on with him and why he's not affected by a demonic virus and all that. Sam's the plot point. Dean is the character with the emotional lens on the story. He's the one through which we interpret what is happening to Sam. That said, let us enter the cold open. After we've been primed to remember Sam's visions and his visions of people dying, we open on a scene that is, we will find out, is one of Sam's visions and not something that's currently happening. It's obvious right from the start because the frame rate is all funky. It's like jerky and uh, staccato shots. As Dean turns, it's it, it's not smooth. There's an echo effect as Dean checks the bullets in his gun, taps the cartridge onto the butt of the gun, and then inserts it. He's ready to go. He's ready to shoot something. But there's like an echoing sound effect. Like there's so much unreality to this entire scene. We flash to a very specific visit beautiful Crater Lake from the River Grove Chamber of Commerce sign on the wall in this doctor's office. Kind of weird that she has a poster framed in her office of the Chamber of Commerce billboard that's like out in the main public area of the town as well. But of course it has to be because that's how Sam knows where this is all happening because he's being led here. Dean enters the room, sees a boy, um, well, a young man tied to a chair, begging for his life, saying it's not in me over and over again. It flashes to a nurse who says, we're all going to die. It flashes to Sarge, um, Mark, who's like, maybe he's telling the truth. And the doctor who can't confirm whether is telling the truth or not, because she doesn't have a test for whatever this virus is yet. It takes three hours to develop. We'll learn later in the episode. And Dean is has this cold look on his face. Like everything up to this point is almost exactly what we will see later in the episode actually transpire, even down to Dean tapping the bullet cartridge on the butt of the gun. That's in the episode, exactly as we saw it here, except smooth and in real time. Except the look on Dean's face here as he pulls the trigger. Dean doesn't hesitate. He's got this cold look on his face and that is how Sam must think that Dean would approach this because his visions always come true he hasn't had a vision not come true yet so he trusts his visions more than he trusts how he knows Dean reacts in a situation and this is something that the show will use throughout the series to show them being manipulated. And I'm thinking specifically here of the monster at the end of this book, how they have these quote unquote prophecies that Sam believes are going to come true because everything else in the books is true and Chuck's a prophet. So obviously everything he says has to come true and everything they do to avoid bringing these prophecies to fruition makes them come true. Like they go out of their way trying to avoid anything that would make these prophecies come true. And yet they still happen anyways, because they knew the information beforehand. The prophecy incorporated that fact into itself 
And of course they were going to do exactly what it, trying to avoid it. But in this case, Sam is being specifically led. And that vision of Dean is something that Sam would believe that Dean is out of control, that he is not in touch with his feelings here. But when we see this shot in reality and play out in real time, of course Dean hesitates. He looks extremely troubled. The look on his face is like a different person. And Sam doesn't get to see that that one. Sam's locked in the other room at this point. So, yeah, there's a chasm here between Sam's vision and reality and what's giving him these visions. And are these visions some innate part of his demon blood ability? Or is this something that's being fed to him specifically to lure him to this place specifically right now? Because we know his other visions have been manipulative like that. In the past, his visions have led him, sure, to a couple of places that he was able to stop things in time, but a couple of others times it was basically used to punish him or torture him. If this was like some innate vision power of his, it should be consistent and not all over the place like it has been. So I'm thinking he less has visions and more has a channel open in his brain where he can receive information when necessary, almost like angel radio, how that functions in the future. He can receive messages. And I think that's more what is happening to him because this message is targeted and specific. They were luring him into this trap. They all set this up. They wanted it to happen. The demons were behind this whole thing. And we know what the purpose of the Croatone virus is in much later canon. But right here is a test for the virus, for Sam, for Dean, for their whole ability to manipulate the scenario the way they do in this episode. And I'm talking Azazel on down. All the demons that are on his team are behind this. We come to a blurry, flashy, wavery shot of Sam waking up on the floor, almost with, you can hear like whispery sound effects that we will later associate with supernatural things happening, like either hearing angel radio, well, that becomes like that high-pitched ringing sound. But this is the whispery sound is always, there are voices of fo- being heard here. This is demonic voices being heard. Sam wakes up on the floor and Dina comes in with a six pack of beer and a candy bar. And Sam is like lying on the floor between the beds in their hotel room. So he wasn't like sleeping and he had a vision. He passed out and fell down on the floor. Like <laughs> he, he, he didn't even make, make it onto the bed. He wasn't asleep. This wasn't a dream. This was a vision that took him down. Sam sits up and he's like panting. Like he's been running Dean turns around and sees him sit up from the floor and he's like, Sam, like, what the hell's wrong with you, man? I left here five minutes ago and you were fine. What happened? Because it's clear that Dean just went out for some beer in a candy bar. He wasn't gone long. He came back to find Sam lying on the floor, panting like he'd run a marathon. And then we cut to the title card. When we rejoin Sam and Dean... They're in the car driving on Oregon 224, Highway 224, which is a highway in Oregon. It runs nowhere near Crater Lake. It runs up towards Portland. Who knows? Maybe they're just taking a detour, the scenic route. I have no idea. 
<laughs> but maybe in their universe, Highway 224 runs right near Crater Lake. We don't know. Sam is calmly explaining his vision to Dean about what he saw, the kid being shot, you know, Dean shooting the kid. And Sam is shaken by this. Dean assumes that the kid must have been possessed. If he had a demon inside of him, that would be one reason to shoot him. Even though they already know that bullets don't kill demons, it just kills the people who are hosting the demons. But Dean is sure that all of Sam's visions so far have been tied to the yellow-eyed demon. And that's true. All the special children are all tied to this demon. Every vision that Sam has had so far has had some connection to people who have been affected by or locations that have been affected by the yellow-eyed demon. So one way or another, Dean expects this case to have something to do with the demon. Dean gets all defensive, like, I must have had a really good reason to kill this guy. And Sam's like, doesn't say anything. And things get tense and defensive and frustrated for both of them. Dean's like, I would never just kill an innocent man. Sam's like, I never said you would. He didn't say, of course I know you wouldn't. He said, I never said you would. Because in the vision, he does kill this guy. Whether he's innocent or not has yet to be proven. But it was something that upset Sam enough that he even brought Dean along. You know, at this point, Sam could have said, I'm going to go check this out. Because in this vision, you kill this guy. Why would Sam bring Dean to a place where he knows or he believes that Dean is going to kill some guy? If he doesn't, at least on some level, very deep down inside of him, believe that Dean would not kill an innocent man and that he must have had a good reason. And what happened to Sam and where was Sam in this vision? But he could have called Bobby and said, Bobby, will you come investigate this with me? I'm leaving Dean out of it because... I'm concerned about what's going on here. Or call in another hunter entirely to check it out. But it's not. Because it's a lure. It's a specific trap for Sam and Dean. It's a test. But Sam got a really good look at the guy in the chair. And he's like, well, we don't know what's going on with this. Whatever it is, the guy in the chair is part of it. We need to talk to him and find out what's going on. And that's a fairly rational assessment of the circumstance. If they can subvert the vision by talking to the kid in advance, maybe they can stop whatever this is from happening or save these people. Sam has had visions that he has been able to stop by preempting them, by getting out ahead of them and stopping them from happening. So he can do that again, he hopes. So he's trusting Dean and bringing him along, even though he was convinced enough by the vision that he had that this was something that Dean could legitimately do. That it was believable enough to him that, yes, Dean, Mr. You're tail spinning and off the rails and whatever could do this. They pull into Crater Lake and it's this idyllic little town, just townspeople going about their business, guy fixing his truck, a trailer for canoes, I guess some, you know, going on canoe tours on the lake. People just doing their thing and being normal people, guy sitting out on his porch preparing his fishing gear and Sam recognizes him as one of the people he saw in his vision. He tells Dean, we need to talk to this guy too, not just the guy in the chair, but everybody else who was in the room. This guy had questioned whether the kid in the chair could be telling the truth in Sam's vision. Yes, he will question whether or not the kid could be telling the truth, but we will also see him have no problem confronting and killing people who have been infected by this virus. 
Christine walks up to his porch and introduces them as Billy Gibbons and Frank Beard of ZZ Top. No, <laughs> of the U.S. Marshals. And immediately the man puts his fishing rod aside and it reveals a tattoo on his forearm that Dean takes note of, which will become relevant in a moment. Sam describes the boy he saw in the chair as early 20s with a scar on his forehead. And Dean's like, confirms, yeah, he's not in any trouble. We're we're just looking for him to ask him a couple questions about another matter. And we think he can help us. It's clear from their conversation that this man knows this guy and is trying to protect him, obviously, from what he believes is a wrongful inquiry into his whereabouts and behavior and activities. And Dean uses the tattoo as an in to gain the man's trust, or at least respect. He recognizes the tattoo and refers to him as Master Sergeant. He recognizes that he was in the Marine Corps and brings up that his father served in the Marines and was a Lance Corporal, which is a much lower rank than Master Sergeant. <laughs> like, Lance Corporal's like the third step up the chain. You know, there's Private and Corporal and Lance Corporal. And then Master Sergeant's like the eighth step up the chain or ninth step, something like that. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact. But Master Sergeant's a much higher rank. That's all we need to know for this. Dean shares details about his father's company that he served in. And after I said all that, I just realized I put something in there that was only in the script pages and not in the actual episode. In the script page, Dean says his father was in the Corps. He was a Lance Corporal. But in the actual episode, he just says he was a Corporal, which is one step lower than a Lance Corporal. (laughs) So I guess John got a demotion between the original draft of this episode and the aired version. Sorry about that, John. After that, the sergeant reveals that, yes, he does know the person he's looking for, that he's a good kid, He lives with his family up the road. They thank him and go back about their business. But now they also have a name, Dwayne Tanner, for the boy that was tied to the chair. And right across the street from the sergeant's house, in the background of this entire scene, is the River Grove Medical Clinic, where all of these events will come to pass. Dean parked his car, like, literally directly in front of the medical clinic, where Sam's vision is going to take place. And I don't even know if Sam even realizes that, yes, he was in a medical clinic, the white coat hanging up by the sign, the doctor that they were talking to. Like, y'all didn't think to just go right into the clinic and talk to the doctor and figure out (laughs) anything? No, but he did go see Sarge. And now they're off to meet Dwayne. As they walk away from his, it's it's not his house, it's his business, Vargo's Fishing Supplies, they cross the street back to where their car is parked. Sarge gives them a wary look. They walk past a telephone pole and Sam notices that the word Croatoan is carved into the telephone pole. He points it out to Dean, who's just like, okay, what, why are we pointing at graffiti now? Croatoan? And Sam's like, yeah, Lost Colony, Roanoke, Ring a Bell. Like, random, out-of-context history lessons about something that happened 400 years ago should just automatically ring bells for Dean, because that's surely what his topic of thought was, not all the way back onto his father already, because he just had to use his father's credentials to get an in with Mark 
across the street, the sergeant. I don't think Dean was in, in a focused mind space to notice history references. Because even once Sam does explain it, Dean's like, oh, yeah, right. The whole colony disappeared. He knew what it was. He just needed a moment for his brain to catch up with where Sam was. So Dean's just as smart as Sam here. He just didn't make the connection first. But Sam gets a good session in mocking Dean first, where he's like, didn't you pay any attention in school? And Dean's like, yeah, shot heard around the world. Bill becomes how bill, bills become laws. And Sam is just obnoxious about that's not school. That's schoolhouse rock. And Dean's like, what? Whatever. What does this have to do with what we're talking about here? So Sam's like, Roanoke was one of the first English colonies in America in the late 1500s. And Dean's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember that. And the only word, the only thing they left behind was a single word carved in a tree. Croatoan. That was all it took for him to remember the entire thing. He'd known it all along. Shocker. Dean's just as smart as Sam. I know people use this as a thing to, oh, the show's trying to say Dean's stupid. No, they're not. They legitimately pointed out that he actually knew all the information. He just doesn't see how it's relevant to what they're going through right now. And Dean's like, you don't think that's what's going on here, that these people were all just going to get disappeared overnight. And Sam's like, well, whatever I saw saw in my head, it wasn't good. He's not sure what his vision's leading to or means or what the circumstances were for it. But he's sure it's not good. And he's convinced that this Croatoan graffiti has something to do with it. Dean reminds Sam that he already said once in this episode that all of Sam's visions are tied to the yellow-eyed demon somehow, so maybe that's what has the power to wipe out an entire colony, and Roanoke is something to do with the yellow-eyed demon, and it may be happening here. Sam's first instinct is to call for help to anyone they know, because this could be a big deal. Call Bobby, call Ellen, call someone. So Dean's agrees that's a good idea, gets out his phone, and he's got no signal. Sam gets out his phone. Of course, he has no signal either. They try a payphone that is down the road because payphones still existed then. And <laughs> and they get no dial tone there either. Dean says, if I was going to massacre a town, that would be my first step. Cut them off from the outside world so they can't call for help. They can't do anything about it. They can't get in or out. It's starting to look like Croto and might be related. I should have been pointing out fishing metaphors, but we have the master sergeant who now owns a fishing tackle shop. And now they go as they go up to the Tanner's house, they have a sign by their front door that reads, Born to Fish, Forced to Work. I think of all the fishing and fish metaphors that surround Cass in much later seasons, but that's a metaphor that's being used even here, way earlier in the series. Because the work that this family has been forced to perform today is just horrifying. They knock on the door and Dwayne's brother answers, and he is not offended or off-put by there being... U.S. Marshals, you know, usually people get distressed. This father gets kind of distressed when they're asking him about Dwayne, you know, his son. He's like, he's not in any trouble, is he? The other kid was just like, oh, yeah, everything's great. You know, it's really just to the left of okay. Like, not 
quite hitting the mark of this is normal behavior. So Sam and Dean both agree that this was not normal behavior, creepy, and they sneak around the house to look in the window only to see the son and father have their mother tied to a chair. The father is cutting the son's arm so that he can bleed into his onto his mother. And it's just super, super, super creepy. They run back around the house. Dean kicks open the door. They run in trying to stop this from happening. This is clearly horrifying. And the father charges at them with a knife. So Dean shoots him because self-defense. He was going to be stabbed to death if he didn't. And the kid escapes out the window. And Sam won't shoot him as he runs away into the woods. Sam and Dean return to town with Beverly Tanner between them in the front seat of the Impala. They park right back where they were, right in front of the doctor's office, and Sam leads Beverly inside. There's a big old fresh-brewed coffee machine in the corner of the waiting room here, and a box with a pink ribbon on it on the counter in the foreground. It's sort of blurry, but it's just a big pink thing, and pink and supernatural is death. I mean... It's obviously a doctor's waiting room, so it's probably like a breast cancer awareness charity drive or something. But in the context of Supernatural, pink always is a symbol of death. You know, Mary's nightgown was pink. (laughs) It looks white, but it was pink. Sam rushes in and calls out for help from a doctor, and the nurse from his vision, Pam, comes running out and, like, recognizes Mrs. Tanner, and she's like, what's happened? Her outfit's interesting, too. Little butterflies, like something, some transformation has is, is already taken place in her all over her scrubs. And again, more pink. As the doctor comes out and leads Mrs. Tanner back to an exam room, Dean comes in with Mr. Tanner's body slumped over his shoulders. It's once again Dean carrying the heavy burden. The dead guy slumped over his shoulders. The burden of what John told him before he died Dean's been carrying that all season long and it's got him all hunched over. And instead of the doctor being like, oh, my God, please set him down. I'll show you to an exam room. She starts questioning him. It's Mr. Tanner. Yes. Was he attacked, too? No, he kind of did the attacking and got himself shot. And all the while, Dean's just like hefting the weight of this whole human being over his shoulders. The doctor's like, well, who are you? And Dean's like, U.S. Marshal, I'd show you my badge, but, uh, and he shoulders the guy again. And it's like, poor Dean is getting asked all the wrong questions instead of, can I help you? Or like, how can I relieve this burden from you? He's carrying the burden and not even really complaining about it, but just because he's gotta know some, nobody else will. So he's stuck with it. As Beverly's explaining to Dr. Lee that her husband and son beat her and attacked her. And the nurse says, I I don't believe it because they all know each other. This is a small town. They're literally the doctor's next door neighbors. They all know each other. And Pam's like, I can't believe it. But the evidence is right here. Beverly is telling you what happened. And the doctor is just trying to understand. She described what happened to them as... They had the devil in them. And that's obviously a pointed phrase to say in front of Sam and Dean Winchester. (laughs) They had the devil in them. Like this switch flipped in them and suddenly they were possessed evil. Of course, Dean hears that and 
immediately thinks, ah, the demon. This is why we're here. They had the devil in them. This is demonic. We know this. They debate whether it could be a mass possession if all these people are being possessed by demons. Dean suggests that's one way to take a town out from the inside, just possess everybody and have them all kill each other. Sam's like, I don't know. We didn't see any demon signs. We didn't see any smoke. We didn't see any of the normal demon activity here. Dean's like, well, something turned them into monsters. He chastises Sam for not having shot and killed the son, let him run away, basically. And Sam's like, I hesitated. It was a kid. And Dean's like, no, it wasn't it. Whatever it is, it's a monster now and it's killing people. So you can't just have sympathy for the kid because it's a kid, which is the boy who's the brother of the guy that Dean shot in Sam's vision. So Sam is already trying to temper the situation in some ways so that they don't just go shooting kids. And in the next little conversation, as the doctor comes out and appalled that they killed her next door neighbor and admits that she can't get even get the sheriff on the phone. She can't get anyone on the phones not working. She asks if they have a police radio and Sam's like, yeah, but it's crapped out like everything else. They can't use it. They're out of contact with everybody. And Dean asks if there's another town where they can go and try and use a phone or get help from somebody. And uh, she's like, yeah, Sidewinder's about 40 miles down the road. And <laughs> there you go with your Shining reference, because the Overlook Hotel in The Shining was 40 miles down the road from a town called Sidewinder. <laughs> so whatever's happening in this town is Shining level bad. <laughs> the whole town is being affected, though, not just one crazy guy. So Sam stays behind to make sure that the doctor remains safe while Dean heads out on the road back the way they come in. And there's a car parked on the side of the road. It's just sort of abandoned there. He gets out and goes to look and all through the interior of the car is broken glass and blood stains, even in the baby's seat in the back seat of the car. But there's no sign of any bodies. And on the ground outside the car door is a knife. Who knows what on earth happened to the people in this car, but it was something awful. Back in the medical clinic, Sam is sitting in the one of the exam rooms where the dead body has been laid out, and he's just sitting there staring at it while the doctor is studying his blood, looking at his blood under a microscope. Claims that he had been uh, ill with a virus of some sort that she can't identify, and there's a weird residue in the blood that she would say was sulfur if she didn't know better and of course sulfur is another keyword that activates winchester brain and sam knows that's a demon sign so whatever this is it may not have been direct possession but something weird is going on here back out on the road dean gets to the bridge out of town and yes this is a town that only has one bridge in and out of it apparently it's at the end of a dead end road <laughs> like there's no other way out of this town except that one bridge, which I don't know how many towns in the world there are like this, but we've discussed this one before. But it does happen in Supernatural quite a bit that there's only one road in and out of town. <laughs> but here they are, and the bridge has been completely blocked off. I suppose even if there were another road out of town, 
it would also be similarly blocked off because that's part of what this virus is doing to people, making them follow the demon's orders, which is to quarantine Sam and Dean in this town until they make the problem go away and they can evaluate whether Sam is immune to the disease or not. But as they have it all blocked off, a bunch of armed men are standing there and one of them is Mrs. Tanner's son, the one who escaped back at the house that Sam refused to shoot. Dean called in it. Well, now he's got proof. He's standing out here with the little militia of local infected people quarantining the town. As Dean's sitting there like in a standoff trying to figure out if he can pile through them or get around them somehow or if he has any hope of talking them down, a man comes up to the car from behind and slaps a hand on the roof and startles him and Guy informs him that the road is closed for quarantine because there's something going around out there and that he doesn't know what it is, but the sheriff called with this information and the sheriff's not here and he wants Dean to get out of the car and Dean is like, I don't think so. Dean pulls a maneuver, backs up as fast as he can. The guy's like clinging onto his window. Dean backsteps down the road and pulls a reverse 180 and speeds the hell back into town because he's not getting through this line of guys without a tank to crush them all with. Back at the medical clinic, the doctor's trying to explain to Beverly that her husband and son may have been infected with a virus and they'd like to take her blood to test it to make sure that she's not infected Beverly seems all worried about this. She rests her hand on the doctor's hand because, you know, they're friends, they're neighbors. They've been friends for like their whole lives. And the doctor's gives a little look like, okay, this is a little weird. And the next minute, Beverly clenches down on her hand, punches her across the face, attacks the doctor, flings her across the room, then attacks Sam and flings him across the room goes for a scalpel and is about to attack Sam, but he clocks her over the head with a, an oxygen tank or something. It knocks her out. On his way back into town, Dean is driving slow and scanning the area, looking for more people who are infected or and about to attack him, and he comes across the master sergeant again, out in the road, pointing a gun at him and yelling, like, stop the car, get out of the car. Dean raises his hands and slowly gets out of the car. It's just one guy, not like six, like back at the roadblock. Dean gets out of the car, points a gun back at the Sarge, and they just start yelling at each other. Are you one of them? Are you one of, no, are you? No, you could be lying. I don't know. You know, it's a hilarious exchange. Dean gets the situation calmed down. He's like, let's just chill before we kill each other. The sergeant's just freaked out. He's like, what's going on with everybody? And Dean has no idea. Sergeant's like, my neighbor, Mr. Rogers. And Dean's like, you have a neighbor named Mr. Rogers? And the sergeant's like, not anymore. Meaning he killed him. You know, it's like (laughs) just the look on Dean's face. It's just hilarious. Even though it's a terrible situation. The sergeant's like, I'm getting out of town. This is crazy everybody's turning and violent like this. And Dean's like, you can't get out. They've got the bridge covered. Sarge is like, I don't believe you. And Dean's like, okay, fine. You stay here and die then. Like you can come with me back to the clinic where they are safe right now. Or you can stay out here and try your luck with these, whatever they are. 
So the Sarge pulls out a handgun and gets in the car and Dean's driving with his gun pointed at Sarge and Sarge is in the passenger seat with his gun pointed at Dean because they don't trust each other at all. And (laughs) they are kind of at the same level of paranoia, which is, is nice to see. While they're on their relaxing drive back to the medical clinic, we flash back there and Pam is like, what if we're all going to die? She's just little Miss Sunshine. She That's her only line through like this whole thing. Oh, we're all doomed. We're all going to die. What if we're all going to die? And I get it. It's a pretty terrifying situation, but holy cow, this girl needs handholding. I mean, we find out later that she's already infected and she has orders to, you know, that she's the one who has to infect Sam. She's been trying to get him alone the whole time or whatever. But man, she really plays it up. Pam threatens to leave. She's like, I got to go check on my boyfriend. He's out there somewhere. I got to make sure he's okay. Sam goes out to try and convince her to stay that this is where you'll be safe and everything. And we'll figure it out. They're bringing help. And when he says that Dean knocks on the door and yells for him to open it for them. And he and Sarge come in. But Pam's moment where she could have attacked Sam there passed and she just kind of stares at him. And without the context of knowing that later in the episode, she's the one who's going to infect Sam. The look on her face is kind of odd. And then you realize, oh, she's she's upset. Her She lost her chance to attack him right there or to infect him right there. Sam explains to Dean all the findings that they have discovered about the sulfur and the virus, and Dean picks it all up right away. Oh, God, a demonic virus. Great. Sam then tries to explain it as something that he saw in John's journal. John's theory about what happened at Roanoke was that it was a demon named Croatoan. It was apparently a demon of pestilence. I mean, obviously, that's not true, and... That's not what's happening here, but they're using the same name. It was just a lure. Before they can finish that conversation, the sergeant calls them in for help. He's paranoid about Beverly having been infected. He's insisting, like, my neighbors, they were strong. And the longer it went on, the stronger they get. If she's infected, she's going to become like that and we won't be able to stop her. He's like, we should stop her now. He's like all gung-ho for killing her right now before she can infect them or infect anybody else or go crazy and hurt somebody. I mean, she's already flung people around. So he's insistent that, yeah, we got to stop this. Dean pulls out his gun like he's ready to do it. And Pam is the one who's like, you're going to kill Beverly Tanner. You can't just kill her. Sam asks if there's any sort of treatment, and the doctor's like, what do you expect? I'm not even sure what kind of virus this is, and she's never seen anything like this. There's no treatment. The Sarge has got his gun pointed at the door where Beverly is being secured at the moment, and he's like, you know, she could break through the door any minute. We got to get her before she gets us kind of deal. And Pam is like, you can't just shoot her. Just leave her in there. She's safe in there. This is a very stressful situation for everybody. Nobody's really on their best mental game here. But everybody's playing exactly into this two sides of an argument that Sam and Dean have to now choose which side they're going to land on. When they open the door, Beverly immediately recognizes the sergeant. She's like, Mark, please. 
it's them. They're the ones who are infected. They tried to kill me. They locked me in here. They're the ones who you need to hurt. Don't hurt me. And he breaks. He looks like he's about to cry being confronted with this. And he can't do it. He can't pull the trigger and kill her while she's begging for her life and still recognizes him and isn't just like animalistically attacking him like his other neighbors were. He knows this woman and she's begging and he can't do it. But Dean can. He asks for confirmation from Sam first. Are you sure she's one of them? And Sam gives a nod. Yes, she is. And Dean steps in and puts her out of everyone's misery. The next shot we get is after dark. Sarge is looking out the window and watching all the townspeople who've been infected just sort of milling around outside while Sam and Dean prepare their weapons. Sam's checking a knife. Dean's loading a shotgun. And they hear a crash from the next room. It's Pam. She's dropped a tray of blood vials that I guess were samples they took from Beverly. And she screams and she's like, oh my God, no, did I get any on me? And I'm like, yeah, she's really over the top with this performance. She had to make it clear that she herself knows she's not infected because, oh gosh, you know, what if I get any on me? But she's been infected all along. So she's had this order from the beginning to get to Sam. She's really good at following orders and playing her cards well. Poor Pam's freaking out again, and she's like, we got to get out of here. We can't stay here. They're everywhere, you know. And they're like, well, we can't leave yet because they're everywhere. And even the Sarge points out that a lot of these guys are good with rifles. They are hunters. You know, they hunt animals in the woods, not monsters. But now they are monsters. But they won't have a hope of getting out if they're just going to try and run the gauntlet and mow people down. There's just too many of them. There's not really much we can do to escape. Sam put forth that they really need to get to the roadhouse. They need to warn people. They need to get at least to a phone. When Sarge suggests explosives, Sam looks up at a shelf at all the medical supplies and is like, yeah, well, we can build a bomb. Just as they're looking through the bottles of things like potassium chlorate and whatever, someone starts banging at the front door. Let me in, let me in, please. And it's our victim from Sam's vision. Dean asks Sam as they walk in, that's the guy, Ike. And he makes a little throat slashy motion with his hand. And Sam's like, yep. So time to figure out why Dean would feel compelled to shoot this kid. I mean, we all know who've seen this episode before that he's a demon and that's a really good instinct to want to kill him. But he is not infected with the virus because he's already a demon, like a full on demon. And he just is hiding very, very well. (laughs) I'm just going to take this moment to point out over the seasons on Supernatural. Remember when demons used to be scary and competent and actually organized and threatening and they just get so much less over the years I think probably because all the smart demons all the ones who are like organized and intelligent enough to handle activities like this get killed 
<laughs> as soon as you give Sam and Dean a knife that can kill demons, they're going to start killing demons. And the ones they're going to kill are the ones who are bold enough like this to run plans like this on them. <laughs> so the smarter demons actually start dying, leaving the kind of dumber demons who didn't get these sorts of assignments in the beginning. And that's what we've got by the end of the series. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, well. But I, I just had to point that out. Back, back in the day, in season two, or even season one, when demons were organized, terrifying, and followed orders really well, and you could rely on them to be like secret agents. And there's not a lot of demons in later seasons who are good at that at all. I just needed to point that out. Back to Dwayne Tanner, now telling all of them the story of how he ended up there. He saw somebody being dragged out of their house and beaten and, and, and he went and ran and hid in the woods and he's wondering if anyone's seen his parents and I'm like okay so the, yeah this kid probably left the house that morning to go fishing and at some point during the day was possessed by the demon who is gonna point him in the right direction to get back to town or whatever but not really let on that he's possessed I, don't, I can't imagine another reason that he would have been able to run the gauntlet of all the Croatoan-infected people we saw out in the street moments before he showed up at the clinic, how he would have gotten through that cluster and then banged on the door and not had them all come running to him. He was banging and shouting out there to be let in. And it's like, okay, that's almost proof right there that you must be either infected or de a demon who is safe from people who are infected with Croton. When he asks for his parents, Dean turns to Sam and is like, awkward, because Dean has now killed both of his parents. The doctor does find a cut on his leg that's bleeding, and of course everybody's immediately suspicious that he was infected with the virus because of the cut. That's how they're doing this blood-to-blood -blood transmission of the virus, and... Here's a big open bloody wound on his leg. Dean demands they tie him up. The Sarge goes to get the rope, starts tying to the chair. Pam looks like she's about to protest this. And the kid stands up and Dean brings his gun out, lickety split without thinking, points it right at him. It's like, no, you're going to sit your ass down here. They asked the doctor if there was any way to tell if he'd been infected or not. And she said no, because it took three hours for the sulfur to show up. In Beverly's blood, it will take at least that long for it to show up in his blood. So there's no test to determine whether or not he's been infected. So their only solution is to tie them up. At this point, Sam is upset with Dean and is like, can I speak with you for a moment? Dean is ready to kill the kid right there just based on Sam's vision. And Sam's like, we don't know if he's even infected yet or not. Let's wait and find out. And Dean's like, and take the chance that he hulks out and infects somebody else? No way. That's not worth the chance. Sam is upset that Dean would just be like, yeah, we're going to kill this kid. You had this vision. He's going to be infected. I'm going to kill him. Okay, I'm good with that. Dean's like, it's a tough job. And Sam's like, yeah, it's supposed to be. We're supposed to struggle with this. You know, the morality of what we do. We're not supposed to just go out and be as evil as the things that are out there. He accuses Dean of being 
just like the Croatoan people who are out there infecting and killing each other. You might kill an innocent man. He's like, I don't know what's wrong with you lately. Dean's just like, okay, that's enough. This guy's not rational. I'm flinging him aside. All Sam has done here is accuse Dean and push him into this. It was Sam's vision of this scene that prompted their entire trip up here. And now they're both stuck here in this situation because of Sam's vision that entrapped them here. Dean just flings Sam aside, you know, leaves the room and locks the door. And Sam's just like, come back. Don't, don't you do this. And then we see the vision that we saw in the cold open play out in reality. Except for the tiny difference of Dean's facial expressions. In the vision, remember, Dean was cold. He was calculating. He didn't have any reservations about shooting this kid at all. Now, though, the moment he walks into the room, he looks scared. Like, I can't believe I have to do this. He's already had to kill this kid's mother and father that day. Sam let his brother escape. His brother almost killed Dean at the bridge. And now Dean is like, has to kill another one of them. It's just horrifying. But this is where it ceases to be about this kid and his family And it becomes about Dean and Sam. Dean's like, it's not him anymore. And this is what John and his final words to Dean come into play. This is the burden that Dean has been wrestling with since the beginning of the season. If Sam stops being Sam and becomes something evil, you're going to have to kill him. This is literally what Dean is facing down. The kid in the chair is irrelevant in Dean's mind. It's as good as if he's shooting Sam. That's the confrontation he's been given here. Yeah, Sam's safely locked in the other room, but this is the emotional burden that Dean is dealing with. That is what he's mentally fighting in his own head as he feels he's obligated to kill this kid because he believes he's been infected with something demonic. There's something in his blood that makes him demonic. Hmm. I think that's so on the nose and and malicious that, okay. Yeah. But this show's about Sam and the problems that Sam wrestles with, right? No. (laughs) This is a Dean problem. When it comes right down to it, of course, Dean cannot kill Sam. He can't kill this kid. His problem isn't that he's lost his sense of empathy and his conscience. It's that he's got far too much. (laughs) The doctor comes in as Sam and Dean have assembled a small arsenal of Molotov cocktails. The doctor comes in and explains that it's been over four hours So clearly they've been at this a while. It's been a long time since that previous scene, four hours to be precise. And the doctor's like, his blood's clean. He's not infected. She asks if they can untie him. And Sam looks to Dean for confirmation. Dean's like, yeah, whatever. And just says nothing. It's left to Sam to make that choice. And Sam agrees, untie him. Sam asks Dean why he didn't do it, why he didn't kill the kid. 
and Dean is just avoiding eye contact. He's avoiding the subject entirely because he broke a premonition of Sam's. From Sam's point of view, the premonition was that Dean was going to kill this kid. When Dean heard that, he knew that that's what Sam saw and Sam's visions always came true. And it wasn't up to Sam to stop him from killing the kid. It was up to Dean to change the quote-unquote prophecy or vision if he wanted to or if he could. And he did. It just came down to making the opposite choice. It was a test. So as they're sitting there and Dean is completely avoiding this topic of conversation because we know exactly why he didn't kill the kid, because we just discussed it, Sam is sitting in front of a sign that says, X-rays, fact and fiction. And it's like, yeah, he's trying to X-ray his brother and figure out what on earth he's telling the truth and lying about because he's hiding something. Dean is hiding something from him and he knows it. But because Dean is not answering him, Sam gets up and leaves the room, goes into the next room to get more alcohol to finish making his Molotov cocktails. And Pam is in there. He asks how she is and she says, good, it'll all be over soon. And then she rushes over while Sam's back's turned locks the door and attacks Sam while Dean's just like in the next room, but locked on the other side of a door and can't stop her from what she has to do. She subdues Sam. She cuts her hand. She cuts his chest and she bleeds into him. Of course, Dean comes in and doesn't hesitate to kill. You know, he has to break the door down, but he doesn't hesitate to kill her. But it's too late. Before she attacks, she tells Sam, I've been waiting for this the whole time to get you alone. Sam specifically, who was lured here with this vision, and she's infected with the virus. She's been given this specific task. Was that given to her by the virus or a demon that infected her and she took orders from? Like, how did she know to infect Sam specifically? And Was it just part of the virus? Was the virus allowed them to be controlled by demons or what? And I mean, it's not relevant, really. It doesn't really matter. I find it curious to think about, so I do. (laughs) But she specifically targeted Sam. She did wait until they had absolute privacy. Like, she could have cut him at any point by accident and just dripped her blood on him and he never would have even known that he had been infected but she wanted specifically to get him alone to let him know that he was being deliberately infected because another part of this test wasn't just Sam being immune to the virus it was about how Sam would feel about himself knowing he was immune to the virus like what does this mean why am I immune why didn't I get sick What do the demons want with me? Does this mean there's already something weird in me? Like already priming this whole conversation about Sam and his demon blood. Because obviously in the story, we know nothing about that yet. But that's something that will evolve from this sort of pieces of breadcrumb trail being laid down. Sarge stops Dean from going over and offering help to help Sam up. He's like, he could be infected now. You need to kill him too now. And as that realization hits Dean, he begins to break. 
this is what it took. He failed to save Sam. Oh, if you can't save Sam from turning evil, you'll have to kill him? Is this not that situation exactly? Now Dean is the one defending Sam. Did her blood enter your wound? And Sarge is like, of course it did. He's infected. And Dean's like, we can't be sure. Stop it. So Mark and Dwayne, you know, the secret demon, are egging them on that they should kill Sam because they know he's infected and that he's going to turn. Dwayne's like, you said it yourself. He's not your brother anymore. He's going to become this monster. Just like you you were going to kill me. Well, I'm not infected. He is. You got to kill him. You were all set to kill me without even any proof. And Dean is like, nobody's shooting my brother. And Sam is like, I agree with them. Just give me a gun and I'll take care of it. I'm not going to become one of those things. And Dean is like, no, no, we can, we still have time. And Sarge is like, time for what? What's going to happen? He's going to turn and then he's going to attack us. I'm taking care of this. And he pulls out his gun and Dean's like, if you even move to shoot my brother, you're going to be dead before you hit the ground. He is not letting anybody else kill Sam. He's going to do everything in his power, even if it's ridiculous and beyond all reason, all rational reason. He's going to do everything he can to save his brother so he doesn't have to kill him. Themes that will continue through the season finale, or the penultimate episode of the season anyway, when Dean will do the ultimate in ignoring rational thinking in order to save his brother. The Sarge is like, okay, so what are we going to do? Dean stands there for a second and he pulls out his keys and throws them to the Sarge. And he's like, you've got all the explosives now. Take them with you. You've got an arsenal in my car. Go. You can get out of here. The Sarge is like, well, what are you going to do? And Dean's just like makes a face and kind of shrugs and looks around. And he's like, yep, I'm just going to stay here. And even Sam is like, Dean, just go with them. You have a chance to live here. And Sam doesn't feel like he does. He's just resigned to dying here. And they leave, even the doctor. And can we just explain the monumental significance of Dean just tossing the keys to his car to a veritable stranger? I mean, that's that's his suicide note right there. He was fully prepared to die with Sam right there. And this is one reason why I say that beyond a certain point in this episode, the series finale doesn't make sense. This is the beginning of that turning point where the series finale no longer makes sense to me at all. As the doctor leaves, she turns to them and is like, I'm sorry. Thanks for everything, marshals. And Dean's like, uh, yeah, we're not really marshals. As if that little bit of truth was important for her to know. She knows nothing else about the truth of this, that this is demons. They didn't tell any of the townspeople any of that bit of the truth, that they're not actually just dealing with a medical virus, but demonic activity. And yet he needed her to know, yeah, we're not really marshals. It's been such a bizarre day for her. She just kind of accepts it and leaves. (laughs) And after she leaves... Dean locks the door to the room they're in. Sam just looks mortified that Dean would have stayed with him. Dean 
does what Dean always does. He tries to put on the brave face. You know, I can't talk about this with Sammy. I got to keep the brave face on. That's exactly what he does. Wish we had a deck of cards, foosball table, have some fun, pass the time. Like this was them being bored in a waiting room somewhere or something and not waiting to die. Sam is choking up as he's telling Dean, you know, just get the hell out of here. You don't have to do this. Just give me my gun and leave. Like Sam was going to off himself as soon as Dean left. Like Dean could actually do that, could actually walk away. All the playfulness of the whole joke about a foosball table and deck of cards is gone as Dean is very, very seriously telling him for the last time, no, I'm not leaving. Sam is violently angry. He smashes his cast. He's still got his cast on. He smashes it down against the exam table where he's sitting and he's just furious with Dean. He's like, this is the dumbest thing you've ever done. And Dean's like, I don't know about that, but it's pretty dumb. But he's got reasons. He's got more reasons than Sam could even begin to comprehend. But Sam starts out with, I'm sick. It's over for me. And it's like, dude, Sam, you're not, you haven't even shown symptom one. And we're going to find out you're immune to the weirdo virus anyway. So like, how are you, quote unquote, sick? I mean, is how is it inevitable? He's just pushing Dean and pushing him and trying to get him to leave. Just like so many other things this season have been about pushing. Like, how far can you push someone before they'll do what you want? Before they'll cave? Before they'll do the evil thing or turn evil or whatever? This whole season is about pushing and Dean's getting pushed by Sam. Sam's like, it doesn't have to be over for you. And Dean's like, who says I want to go on? And Sam is just shocked by this, that Dean wouldn't want to keep fighting, wouldn't want to continue hunting and trying to stop the evil things. Dean pulls the gun out of the back of his pants and he sits down and he's just holding it and he just looks absolutely defeated. He's like, I'm tired of this job. I'm tired of this life. I'm tired of this burden on my shoulders. You know, like the dead guy he had to haul in there (laughs) earlier in the episode. He sees it as a burden on his shoulders. It's not that he hates hunting. He hates what John put on him. That whole, you got to save your brother. And if you fail to save him, you're going to have to kill him. That's your punishment for failing to save him. And that's what he's been carrying since John died. And honestly, he's been carrying that sort of burden since he was a child. You know, keep Sam safe. If you don't keep Sam safe, you failed. And you here's your punishment. This is just the one, the, the biggest one in a long series of punishments for Dean that involve his failure to take care of Sam. He failed again right here. He couldn't save Sam from the evil thing that got inside of him in this episode, the blood. He couldn't save him from that. And now he's to be told now he's going to have to kill him or he's going to have to die. Either way, he feels like he's failed. Either way, he's lost this whole game. Sam tries to explain, you know, I understand, you know, this stuff with dad has been. And Dean's like, nope, 
you're wrong. It's not dad. Well, that's part of it, but... And Dean is just about to break open and explain to Sam why he's staying because he failed to save him. So now he has to die. And that's Dean failing his ultimate mission, the ultimate thing that he believed he had been built into by John as a human being, as a hunter. He's failed in the biggest possible way. What more is there to go on living for at that point? When you failed in every possible way, this is his lowest point of his life in this moment. He has failed in every way. Honestly, they have a lot of low points in the future. (laughs) And obviously, selling his soul is a low point, and being a demon is a low point, and being in hell is a low point, and you know, a lot of low points. But for Dean personally, Something in this episode changes in him and it never goes back to what it was before. Arguably, you could say that he hits that low point again in the season finale or when he sells his soul for Sam, but it was something he could actually do to salvage the situation. He could save Sam still. At this point, he feels like Sam is lost to him, that there is no saving him from this, that there is no coming back from this, that there is no Hail Mary play, that he can save him. At least when Dean sells his soul, he believes that his salvation is in saving Sam. Here, he doesn't see that salvation. So arguably, while yes, he is in the same low point, he makes a different choice. Because in this moment, when he was about to break in this episode and confess what truly has been his burden to Sam before they, he expects them both to die, they're interrupted. The doctor is back. She comes in and she's like, you better come see this. They go outside and everybody is gone. It's like a ghost town. Nobody is there anymore. Where is everybody? They've all just vanished. You're looking at a pump of regular gas and premium gas in in the foreground as we pan around the street. It's all foggy and misty and not a soul in sight. As they explain that the whole town is empty, everyone's vanished. Dean focuses back on that telephone pole from the first scene in town, Croatoan. Five hours after Sam was infected with the virus, the doctor checks his blood again And there's still no sign of the virus or any sulfur in his blood. And Sam has not become a ravening murderer. So he dodged a bullet. He didn't get the virus. The doctor's like, yeah, compared to the Tanner samples, your blood looks completely normal. And then she goes to look at the Tanner samples again, which now also look completely normal. So what was this virus? And Was Sam ever really infected with it? Or when the town was purged of all the infected people, did Sam get purged of it as well? Like, he never started to turn or show symptoms. Was he really immune? Or was it some effect of whatever cleaned the all evidence and all trace of the virus out of the town cleaned it out of him too? Who knows? But everybody in this episode is pretty convinced that Sam was simply immune. Dwayne and Sarge pack up their truck. The two of them are heading out of town together. They're like, yeah, we're getting as far away from this as possible. 
Dwayne invites the doctor to come with them to get out of town. And she's like, no, I'm going up to Sidewinder to see if I can get the authorities up here and see if they'll believe me when I tell them what happened up here. And she confirms again for Dean that there's no signs of the infection in Sam, that he's going to be fine. Meanwhile, Sam and Dean are really left with nothing to go on, on what any of this was. And Dean's just sort of angry about it. Like, what even happened here? All these people, they don't just, people just don't vanish. And Sam's like, yeah, and why was I immune? And Dean's like, that's another good question. This is going to be one that haunts them for a long time to come. Not only because of the fact that Sam was immune and all these people vanished. And I mean, they, they suspect it had something to do with the yellow eye demon. But why is he playing with them in this specific way? But this one's going to haunt Dean emotionally because of what he was willing to do in this episode. That he was willing to just kill some random stranger (laughs) because of this virus that apparently Sam is immune to. He couldn't bring himself to kill his brother. He couldn't fail. (sighs) Just emotional baggage galore from this episode. After Sam and Dean pull out and leave town, it's nighttime again. Dwayne asks Sarge to pull over on the side of the road He's like, oh, I got to make a call. And Sarge is like, yeah, we got no reception here. And Dwayne's like, I got it covered. And he pulls out a little knife. Sarge is like, what the hell is that? Dwayne reaches up and stabs him in the neck, just like Meg did to a skeevy van driver last season. Stabs him in the neck, drains his blood because, yes, Dwayne was a demon the whole time. And makes a phone call confirming that the town has been completely cleared that all traces of what they did there are gone. Everybody's been dealt with and Sam is immune. He says something to the effect of Sam was immune as we expected. Like this whole thing had just been a test to find that out. And it was just a fun way for them to play games with the Winchesters and hurt their brains over this. But yes, They expected Sam to be immune. The whole point was like, as Pam the nurse said, to get you alone. I've been waiting for this all day. This is, this was the whole point of this exercise was to get you alone so I could infect you with this just as a little test. And I'm betting Azazel knew what John's final orders to Dean were, because do you really think once he made that deal with John, he was letting John very far out of his sight at all? He probably heard every last word that John whispered in Dean's ear about if you can't save your brother, you're going to have to kill him. Because not only does this entire episode play off that, play off Dean's guilt, testing him to see if he would kill Sam or what lengths he would go to to protect Sam. For the rest of the season, Dean is going to be tested on this again and again on trying to save Sam, like even in the next episode. As I'm watching the little scene with Dwayne and his blood bowl, the little whispery noises that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode when Sam wakes up from his vision and tries to come back to consciousness sounds an awful lot like this. The blood bowl noise. That's the demonic communication noise I was trying to come up with when I was watching that scene at the beginning of the episode. Because whatever this is, it's sort of like it's speaking to Sam through his blood, 
through the demonic part of his blood. That's so on the nose. It's crazy, but it's exactly what it is. That's what, that's how I've seen, always seen Sam's visions, not as some sort of magical seeing on his part, but more of a magical receiving that he's receiving something that somebody else is sending to him to manipulate him exactly like this. We know that's Azazel's deal. He pushes. And this is how he's pushing Sam. But the episode isn't quite over yet. We get a little idyllic scene of Sam and Dean enjoying a beer by the riverside, just relaxing, taking a break, finally getting to enjoy those beers that Dean brought in in the opening scene of the episode, I guess. But now Sam is going to pester Dean about what everything he'd said the night before when he thought they were both going to die. That Sam is going to needle him until he actually talks about it. Which, God, Sam, why? Why can't you just leave him alone? But I mean, yes, Dean really does need to open up. But man, you're just an annoying little brother. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) But Sam does question why he said he was tired of the job and everything and we get Dean's very first deflect well the the deflection isn't the first deflection but it's the first deflection that he wants to take a vacation he just wants to take some time off he needs a break they deserve it he wants to go to the Grand Canyon it's not the beach vacation this is the Grand Canyon and yes we know that Later on in the series, we'll find out that he and Sam had been to the Grand Canyon when Sam was four and Dean was, I guess, like eight or nine. But there's explanations that can work in story for that mistake. But also, Edlin basically said, yeah, that was a kind of a mistake and it didn't get fixed in editing. There's enough in canon to justify why Dean wouldn't have remembered going to the Grand Canyon or... Even if they had gone to the Grand Canyon, like Sam said in that episode, and rode a farty donkey, it was something that Dean obviously said he barely even remembered himself, probably because he was eight years old and in charge of taking care of his little brother instead of actually having fun. But choosing to do something is a lot different than being dragged into it and forced to be the babysitter and like caretaker while their father was probably hunting something in the Grand Canyon, which is the whole reason they were there. If they'd gone when they were little, whatever. Edlin says it should have been changed before it got to production, but oh well, he still wrote it and still made it into the show. We got to find a way to explain it in canon. But point being, This is the first time Dean mentions anything even remotely close to the idea of a beach vacation. And obviously in later seasons, that will become his new Grand Canyon of, man, we just need a break. We should just take a vacation and not as a dodge like it is here. Not because he's trying to evade answering Sam's questions or evade having to deal with their responsibilities as hunters, but because they can, because they're no longer necessary to fulfill that role in the universe, that that should have been what they got out of the world. Like at the end of the day, when they had defeated that final enemy, that's what they should get. This, what Dean longs for right here is 
what he always longs for anytime there even looks to be a remote sliver of hope for a future in his life. He just wishes to be able to take a step back and not have to carry that burden anymore. And that doesn't mean dying idiotically on a fucking lame-ass hunt that, you know, getting killed by clown mask demons or vampires or whatever. That's not what it means to be able to lay down that burden should have been for him to be able to walk away and just live. How did that not happen? Eh, whatever. Enough complaining about the series finale. Back to this episode. Meanwhile, as Dean is like, why do we have to be responsible for all of this? You know, why do we have to carry this burden? Sam is like, why are you saying all this? And Dean's like, you know, well, first off, because see, Sam doesn't know about the bird, the extra helping of burden that Dean is carrying. And he has zero pity for Dean in this situation. Sam's like, yeah, whatever weight you're carrying, let me help a little bit. Let me help with it a little bit. And it's just, Dean's looks at him and like, dude, you're the weight I'm carrying. Just shut up. You know, you're going to drag this out of me. You're going to hate me for it when you hear it. But it's the truth. And he's like, yeah, I promised dad I wouldn't tell you that I'd keep this from you. Because it's a horrible thing to know. And what's Sam supposed to do with this information? I mean, we're going to see what he does with it. He turns into a little bitch in the next episode. (laughs) As soon as he hears it and blames Dean as if there was something Dean could have done about any of this. And that it, it wasn't killing Dean all around from all sides. And he knew it would make Sam angry. Even if he'd told Sam the moment John had died. Like... Uh, you know what? I'm going to rant about that next week because it, Dean doesn't actually get to the meat of the problem here. And I've been talking for almost two hours about this episode now. So I'm going to stop because that is how this episode ends with Sam, you know, asking Dean to tell him what John told him before he died. And it's a cliffhanger, of course. But it's just so entirely unfair to Dean. Everything he's had to struggle with through the whole season up to this point, all of it fits with what we find out next week. And all of it afterwards, right up to the season finale, fits with that revelation. And it's just like the whole season pivots on this episode. And... This was the mid-season finale. So there was like a three or four week gap after this episode aired before it came back in January with the next episode. So imagine having to sit on this not knowing what happened. At least we all know what happens next. So it's not a terrible struggle or burden for us. I don't even know if there's anything more I can say about this episode. It's just... You don't get it from Dean's point of view. You don't really get it, I guess. Anyway, that's all until next week's episode. Season 2, episode 10, Hunted. With the return of Gordon Walker and Ellen and Joe. And more interesting special children nonsense. All a big pile on of 
something is wrong with Sam because he ran away again. Every time he runs away, something terrible tends to happen. Anyway, until next week, you can find me at SPN George on Tumblr or at Mittens Morgul on Tumblr, or you can email me at mittensmorgul at gmail.com. I'm all over the place. Every once in a while, I feel like I compelled to mention that I am on Twitter as well, but I don't do fandom there. So just FYI, I will talk to you there, but I will not get into fandom debates on Twitter because I value my sanity. What little I have, it's mine and the fandom cannot have it. (laughs) God. And I can't even be mad at Sam and all this, you know? He just doesn't know. And he is just, you know, a kid. Like, he argued why he didn't shoot Dwayne's brother. Because he's just a kid. (laughs) More trauma to come next week. Until then, have a good one.